Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen, and today we have the real privilege of being joined by a practicing doctor for the last 20 years, and the chief medical correspondent for ABC News, Dr. Jennifer Ashton. Dr. Ashton received her medical degree from Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons. In 2006, she became the first female medical contributor to the Fox News Channel, and from 2009 to 2011, she was the medical correspondent for CBS News Network. And since 2012, she's also been the senior medical contributor for Good Morning America and World News Tonight ABC News. In October 2017, ABC announced Dr. Ashton as the chief medical correspondent and health editor. During the pandemic, she's played a truly critical role in keeping Americans informed. She's appeared on the ABC network sometimes up to 14 hours a day in order to bring viewers important medical information, and she's widely considered one of the most trusted health personalities on television today. She's also the best-selling author of six books, including The Self-Care Solution and her recently published book, The New Normal, A Roadmap to Resilience in the Pandemic Era. It's a real privilege for us to have Dr. Ashton on the show to talk about the coronavirus pandemic and what we can do to support our own physical and mental health during it. Before we get to Dr. Ashton, I am really excited to let you know about a new project I've been working on. I'm going to be hosting an online summit. It's presented by Being Well, and it's titled Life After COVID, Preparing Ourselves for the New Normal. The summit will be freely available from May 21st to 23rd and feature a fantastic group of world-class experts who have previously been on the podcast. This includes people like Lori Gottlieb and Dr. Bruce Perry, Dr. Stephen Hayes, Dr. Steve Porges, Nedra Tawab. It is a great group of people. I'm also going to be joined by some guy named Rick Hansen. We're going to be doing live Q&As. There's going to be a ton of supplemental material. And again, it is all freely available May 21st to 23rd. If you'd like to learn more about the summit, you can follow the link in the description of today's podcast. Again, I'm really looking forward to it. It's been a ton of work to put it together, and I hope that you enjoy it. So all that out of the way, onto our conversation with Dr. Jennifer Ashton. So Dr. Ashton, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, you guys. It's really an honor and a pleasure to be with you, and I'm doing well. Awesome. Glad to hear that. That's great. So I want to play off the title of your book, The New Normal. I'm in California. Forrest is here, too. We've had a lot of ups and downs as a state. But definitely, there's a sense with more and more people getting vaccinated, people kind of stabilizing, there's this longing and yearning to get back to the old normal and even a kind of prickliness at any sort of restriction on a return to that former sort of equilibrium that people were used to. And yet you're talking about the new normal that we just have to face. So why do we have to face and deal with a new normal? I just kind of want to ask the naive question, why can't we just go back to the old normal? What's pushing (laughs) us into this new normal? Well, As you guys know, I'm a medical doctor, not a psychologist, but in medical school, we do have to learn some psychiatry and some mental health and mental illness. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't learn enough. But in speaking to a lot of mental health professionals, first of all, your question, Rick, is a really important one because we're not just seeing that people want to go back in time almost magically in the setting of a pandemic, we tend to want to do that in life, right? We look Ah. look at pictures and we go, oh, I wish I was 10 years younger. Oh, I wish I was still in high school or whatever. I wish my son was 10 years old and we were playing chess again. (laughs) Yeah, see, there you go. Exactly. And so we do that with a lot of things that that's a very common mindset, you know, and and thought process and emotional phenomenon, the reason part of the reason we're doing it now so much is because it represents a manifestation or a reflection on what we've lost over the last one plus year, which is a lot of contact with friends and family, um, financial livelihood, economic livelihood, social and behavioral freedom and flexibility, you know, emotional security, whatever that may mean, 
you know, we've all lost something and some people have paid the ultimate price and lost a loved one to COVID. Um, so when people say they want to go back to normal, that's partially a grief manifestation, you know, mm. to reflect what we've mm. been through, mm -hmm. what we are in some cases continuing to go through and we want to get out of it and we want to go back to what's common and familiar um, and feels secure and stable. And, you know, when I was writing the book, which was in August and September of 2020, uh, people were already starting to banter around that phrase, the new normal. And it made me cringe, to be honest with you, because uh, there's nothing normal about what's going on right now. <laughs> so let's just start there. And it's not new anymore because we've been dealing with this for a year and three months uh, and it's not over yet. So it, as the saying in Saturday Night Live is, it's neither new nor normal, discuss. Um, so, um, so that's kind of where the title came from. What are some of the actual forces like new COVID variants or resistance to public health measures, the actual factors, the objective material factors even, that are just going to keep dragging us through this even throughout the end of uh, 2021? Well, I think everyone's kind of getting a deep dive immersion in the world of science. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think for some context, in the world of infectious diseases, people study viruses for their entire careers and yeah. don't learn everything there is to know about a virus. We've known about this virus for a year, you know, a little over a year. So it's actually impressive what we do know about it, but yet at the same time, there's a um, urgency or impatience that I think the American public has, including scientists, by the way, with, you know, we just want to figure this out. We want to know what's going on. We want to solve the problem. And that's just unfortunately not realistic. I mean, we are accomplishing a lot, but, you know, in medicine and science and public health, I think it's always important to remain very humble. And, you know, we're not in charge of this virus right now. This virus, unfortunately, is in charge of us. We have the potential to gain the upper hand, but, it's not a quick fix. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. like we have a fast food culture and we want fast virology or fast plague <laughs> management. That's and right. we just have to cultivate the virtue of patience, kind of old school. Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Related to that, I would love to ask you some vaccine-related questions because that's something that a lot of people are thinking about right now, making choices about. Mm -hmm. uh, Rick and I are both fortunate to be fully vaccinated. We've encouraged our listeners, assuming that it's medically appropriate for them to get vaccinated. And as many people listening probably know, a distribution of the J&J &J vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, was paused based on these potential ties to a very small number of instances of blood clotting issues in pretty specific populations of people. And for some people, that's raised concerns about the safety or the efficacy of the vaccines as a whole. So because you are so knowledgeable about this territory, what's going on right now with the J&J &J vaccine? If it, yeah. approves, if it gets approved again, should people feel safe getting it? And just kind of generally speaking, how do you feel about all of this? And how do you think about risks in general, weighing different yeah. kinds of risks, which Absolutely. is really the bottom line question here? Yeah, it really is. I'm glad you guys asked about this. So first of all, for some background, just to reassure your listeners. Yeah, please. My medical specialty is OBGYN and obesity medicine. But in my role as chief medical correspondent for ABC, News. Um, it is my job to do a deep dive into any medical headline that's making the news. And so therefore, for the last year and four months, um, I've been eating, breathing, sleeping, dreaming, speaking, living, all things COVID. Um, I spoke to the Surgeon General today on our show, GMA3. I have Dr. Fauci's personal cell phone number, and we communicate on a regular basis. By the way, he does text and he does use emojis. Fun fact. <laughs> um, I, you know, I've, I've been in touch with the commissioner of the FDA, the director of the CDC. So I am getting the latest uh, information on all things COVID oftentimes before it hits the headlines, um, because that's what happens in, in network news. 
but I'm also a practicing physician. So as Rick asked, you know, how do we think about risk? I am talking to real patients on a regular basis who have these very questions. So I would say, first, Forrest, your question about the J&J vaccine. First of all, by far the majority of the vaccines given in the United States thus far have been Pfizer and Moderna. Okay, so this is a small percentage of the vaccines in the US. And I think that when people heard this headline that the, that the rollout was being paused while the FDA and CDC investigate these rare clotting issues, that people should be incredibly reassured for many reasons. Number one, there's transparency in the US with anything that even smells the slightest bit fishy. We've heard from the beginning that safety uh, issues, that no corners will be cut, and this is proof of that in real time. Number two, this is our public health system at work. There's always surveillance of any product, any drug, any vaccine, any test, and if something starts to generate a safety signal or a question, things are paused. Warnings can be put, labels can be put, black box warnings exist all the time. So I think that people should be reassured when they hear this. Now, when it comes to the meat of this question, how to evaluate risk, okay? This is the billion dollar question. It's not the million dollar question. And I go through this in my book, The New Normal. It's not just what's the risk of a blood clot, a rare blood clot. We heard that number, by the way, it's less than one in a million, okay? It's also, well, what's the risk of getting this rare blood clot in the brain if you get COVID? It's 50 to 100 times greater than the risk yeah. associated with the vaccine, yeah. all right? So that's number one then what is the risk of this rare blood clot in the brain with other things like taking birth control pills, 40 to 50 to 100 times greater as well. So it's just, what's the risk of this clot? What's the risk of not getting the vaccine? And by the way, that's significant. The risk yeah. of getting COVID, the risk of getting long-term brain effects of COVID, the risk of getting long-term cardiovascular effects of COVID, that could be 10 to 30% of all COVID infections. Mm. For me, I was less worried about dying than I was about becoming like a long hauler post-COVID syndrome. Um, I can't roll the dice with that. If, I, if my brain isn't working properly, I can't do my job. I can't earn a living. And so you know, there's those risks. And then what's the benefit of getting this vaccine? Well, we've heard about the efficacy, these vaccines, you know, and when you talk about the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, 100% effective at preventing hospitalizations and deaths. Those are the endpoints we care about, yeah. right, for the most part. And then Pfizer and Moderna, 95% effective at preventing severe disease, also mm. really, really important. And then, you know, also we have to remember that there's an altruistic component with this vaccine as well. You know, you may be fine if you get COVID. 40 to 50% of cases are asymptomatic. I'm not worried about Forrest. He's a young, healthy person if he gets COVID. But guess what? I'm worried about Forrest getting infected and infecting his grandmother who might die sure. yeah, totally. of COVID. So there's that to be considered. And then, you know, what's the benefit of not getting it? I mean, I guess you don't have to think about any of these issues, but I don't know how realistic that is. So it's those four questions that people should ask themselves when they're weighing any kind of decision that has to do with their health. And, um, you know, there is nothing in medicine and science that is zero risk, nothing. You know, we get into a car, we take a risk. We get into an airplane, we take a risk of, by the way, of getting radiation exposure. That's that's a known entity. Yeah. And we still get on planes. I'm never crawling out of bed. I've had it. But then there's a <laughs> risk in staying in bed. Of course. So, you know, there's no such thing as zero risk. And I think that people have a hard time stratifying risk. And that's a big reason why I wrote The New Normal, because I wanted to help people learn yeah. how to think like a doctor and use those kind of tools to go about their lives in the best way possible. It's really an excellent book. And I know Forrest wants to ask you a little bit more about how to think 
like a doctor. I want to ask you to think like a doctor in a pretty concrete way about people who increasingly are vaccinated. So I've had both shots. And I have to say, uh, just to tell you the truth, when I saw that little needle approaching my arm, I felt so grateful, almost teary, and it just blew me away. Thank yeah. you, science. You know, essentially, as you well know, apparently from the, at the point that they had sequenced the genome, essentially, of the COVID-19 virus, within 60 days, there were the first shots in people's arms in the very beginning of the trials. Like, yep. that's incredible. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So for people who are vaccinated, let's say, who still want to be thoughtful about risk to themselves and risks to others through asymptomatic cases that might be passed on to something, somebody else, et cetera, et cetera. What's your general guidance for how people who are vaccinated can manage risks, such as being in closed spaces with other people who are vaccinated, being in closed spaces with people who are not vaccinated, uh, walking down the street where people are generally wearing masks as a new social norm signaling that, but you don't really need to wear a mask yourself, maybe? Or how do you think about all that? And what advice do you have to for folks like, who are, you know, I think something like half the adults in America have gotten at least one shot or are getting close to that tipping point. What's your advice there? Well, listen, I just asked the Surgeon General that exact <laughs> question okay. today. Well, it's a great question. Yeah, it is a great question. And I'll tell you, um, first of all, the only official guidance right now um, as of April 22nd, 2021, from the CDC is that people who have been vaccinated can get together with other vaccinated people in small, like at home settings without masks or distancing. People who have been vaccinated can get together as per the CDC at home with even unvaccinated people who are at low risk of getting COVID complications without wearing masks or distancing. But out in general public, I mean, I have to say it because I feel this way. Unfortunately, we are still not seeing any sweeping recommendations about, well, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask in the street. According to Dr. Fauci, we will eventually get to that point. We're not quite there yet. Personally, um, and again, disclaimer, uh, thank goodness I'm not in charge of making these recommendations. But if I were... I would, I would say, guess what? If you're walking down the street and you're vaccinated, you're moving, you're, you're outdoors, the chance of being infected as you're moving, you know, and you're not standing in one place is very, very low. But I think that when you're talking about going into stores or going on an airplane or being in a very densely populated, you know, setting, especially indoors, I think that Masks are important. They are still required as per the CDC, regardless of someone's vaccination status. And I think, you know, it, it's a low risk for, for us to keep wearing a mask in those settings and probably a benefit to ourselves and others. But boy, I hope we start to see some more increasing kind of, well, if you've been vaccinated, then you can do blah, blah, blah sometime soon, because I think we all want that. Yeah, no, totally. And I think that that's a great general guidance as well and a kind of clarification of what's become a very uh, thorny territory for people. So thanks for doing that. What else <laughs> can people do behaviorally to support their health while the pandemic is still going on inside of this context of the new normal, whether that's diet or supplements or whatever else? Well, I think that right now it's really important to lock down your own overall health and well-being. And by the way, that includes mental health and well-being as much as you can. And by the way, it's, it's not only a good time to do that, it's practical as well, because you know there are a lot of things we can't do right now. So why not take advantage of the time and opportunity to do the things that you can do? And so you know now it's like spring cleaning, right? Only it's spring cleaning for your body and mind. And you know, I definitely did this. I'm not just talking the talk, but I also walked the walk. In the setting of the pandemic, I realized that, you know what, my fitness routine was suffering, I needed to get that back on track. My sleep schedule was suffering, I needed to get that back on track. 
my diet, which normally was very good, or at least I thought, boy, that really jumped the track like so many um, Americans. And so I tried something really ambitious. And on my third quarantine, after being exposed to someone with COVID, even though I was vaccinated, my, my employer required that I quarantine for 10 days, I decided to do a plant-based experiment. And that was the first week of February. And I never went back. It's been so interesting and so great and so easy. So for me, you know, it's about those three things, how we eat, how we move and how we rest. And if those things are kind of on lock, I think that everything else will follow physically and mentally. Yeah, I think that's really been the case for me personally. Absolutely. Like at the beginning of things, I was having, I think, as many certainly people in America and probably around the world were experiencing as well, this real struggle with what I was eating, where I actually like cooking. I like to cook at home. Um, But nonetheless, we just get into a culture where we get used to being out and about at a restaurant or you're ordering takeout from somewhere. And certainly early on, we didn't have a lot of clarity on the individual level about what was safe and what wasn't. And that Mm -hmm. kind of segues me into something that's been a theme for this conversation as a whole, which is how do we parse information? And as Rick said earlier, how do we assess risk? Early on in the pandemic, there was this kind of double whammy that was happening, because on the one hand, we didn't really know everything there was to know. We were still sciencing. And that's normal science stuff, right? You start with a hypothesis and you explore it. Mm Mm-hmm. And then alongside those real and very normal challenges in the scientific process, well, there was an enormous amount of misinformation, whether this was like deliberate misinformation or it was just people who didn't know what they were talking about saying things with a lot of confidence. And one of the things that you explore in the book is how people can hone their critical thinking skills of different kinds and learn how to kind of parse this complicated medical information. So I'd love to get into that a little bit here. How can people get better at thinking in this very critical way, or as you say, at thinking like a doctor? I think first, before we get to the receiver of that information and how people can interpret information, let's start with the person who's communicating that information. Mm -hmm. And I think from the beginning, this pandemic has been a story of communication, in most cases, poor communication. Yeah, totally. And I think what people need to understand is that, you know, today when everyone has a device on their person, <laughs> we there's no shortage of access to information. So it's where that information is coming from and who's helping you interpret that information that's going to make, make or break the situation. And I can just speak for what went on at, at my network, ABC, which is the number one network in the United States. You know, we have an entire medical unit where we have a full t- two full-time medical producers and then four residents who are MDs. And we have a legal and standards department that looks at every study, every question for every broadcast. And so there's not, there are so many checks and balances with the words that come out of our mouths before millions and millions of people hear them. Not every media outlet does it the same way. Um, And again, I can't speak for other ones, but I know that just because someone has an MD after their name does not mean that they've spoken to Dr. Anthony Fauci, does not mean that they've spoken to the head of the CDC, does not mean they have a, a medical and legal department behind them to help them vet information. And they may also not be used to speaking on live national television on a daily basis. And with all respect for for a lot of smart doctors, it's not easy to do that. Um, you know, you could be the smartest doctor, and when you are on, you know, a live network, and you know that five or ten million people are listening to you, it can be very easy to misspeak. The yeah. people who work in television do this. I do it every single day, and I've been doing it yeah. for sixteen years. So. I think that that's one thing that people need to realize. And and I am used to saying at this point, or as far as we know, or this study published at so-and-so and getting it in, in a minute and 40 seconds. I have a lot of doctors in my family 
Most of them can't even say hello in a minute, 40 seconds, <laughs> let alone <laughs> go through all of this information on live national television. It doesn't ah, mean they're not me. smart. It just means they're not used to communicating that way. So I think that when people hear a headline, I go through in the book how they should start to think about that for themselves, which is who's communicating this information? Where did it come from? Is it something that we've seen happen in, as in the case of these blood clots, six people? Or is this happening to 60,000 people or 6 million people? There's a very big difference. And look, there have been published studies in the course of this pandemic that are not you know, the, the pinnacle of methodology either. So yeah. I think that whenever there's a dynamic and rapidly evolving situation, things can change. And for example, you know, Forrest, when I'm sure you were referring to the mask controversy that happened in the beginning of the pandemic. Yes. Mm -hmm. And what I've tried to explain to people in the book on national television, on radio and podcasts like yours is there was no about face, pardon the pun, really. Um, the concept of masks get put on sick people has not changed, right? The reason that the recommendation for the entire American population to wear masks changed is because we learned something new. And in medicine and science, when we learn something new, we maintain this flexibility to adapt to it and use that new information to help us. And that is exactly what happened. By March and April of 2020, we learned that 40 to 50% of people infected with this virus show no symptoms. So then the CDC said, wow, now it makes sense to put masks on everyone because you might not know who's sick. So the concept is still the same. We put masks on sick people, but we learned something new that informed that recommendation change. And in medicine and science, you can't just do something because you can do it, right? Like when people mm. said, well, what's the harm? Well, there was a harm in February and March because we didn't have enough masks for healthcare workers. So there actually was a harm. And of course, now more than a year later, we know that masks can actually help protect the person wearing them also. So talk about uncharted territory. It's not just as Rick was saying, the development of a vaccine, it's that look at what we've learned and we've recommended from a public health standpoint. And it's all about how you interpret those headlines, how you process and integrate new information. And I really do believe that anyone can learn to do that. You do not have to have initials after your name. A couple of things here related to that. The first is that in evaluating sources of information and their credibility, one of the things that to me is really important is to be clear whether the person is communicating in good faith. If they're communicating in good faith, they may have values that are shifted to the left or the right, let's say, of your own, but at least they're communicating in good faith, and ultimately they're willing to put their communications out to the jury, as it were, of reality, like what turns out to be eventually true. And then there are people who seem clearly to be not communicating in good faith because they've got other kinds of agendas. So that's one of the things that um, I just want to put in the mix here that will then relate to the question I'm getting at, which is we engage in public health practices for our own sake and, in some regards, for the sake of others. So we're holding two priorities in mind, our own immediate welfare and that of other people, including uh, almost in a chain of dominoes the person we affect, who affects the person, who affects her grandmother, who might die. It's hard for many people, I think, to keep in mind the welfare of others outside of their immediate circle, and yet that's part of what we need to do when we take care of the common good. And I'm wondering what you've seen that actually helps people keep in mind the welfare of others, including others who are not like me, for the sake of maintaining appropriate uh, best practices uh, from a public health standpoint during a time of plague? Boy, I don't, I actually don't know that I have an answer to that question, Rick, because basically what you're asking is, how do you teach people to be concerned about the well-being of others from a health standpoint? I do think people can learn how to be considerate of others, obviously, right? I mean, 
I grew up at a time when someone taught us when I was little, when my brother was little, that you hold the door for someone <laughs> if, if you're, yeah. you know, and, and let someone else go through a door before you, you know, I mean, so I do believe that it can be taught, but in some cases it takes more time than others. And politicization of a plague or a pandemic um, or a public health emergency is unfortunate because I think I say in the book, when people are in a hospital gown, whether you're homeless or a billionaire, everyone's tush looks the same when it's hanging out of the back of the gown. <laughs> right? Please do not remind me <laughs> of what mine looked like. <laughs> right. So, you know, we don't, in medicine, when we're taking care of someone, we don't say, um, do you live in a red state or a blue state? You know, yeah. like, and that's always been the case. And I think it's still the case now. And I think that when you, when you talk about trying to explain to people how to behave, you know, some people need a little bit of time um, to learn how to do that. Um, and that's okay, um, as long as we all eventually get to the same place. That's good. I think that uh, for me, one of the things that this time has revealed uh, is the consequences of gradually hollowing out over 30 years even um, the the various factors of the common good, the shared good, like public health resources, like investing in hospital systems over time, and nurses, uh, PPEs, protective equipment, things like that, as well as other values in civil society. And it's a little bit like you could have a really nice house that's been hollowed out by termites. And it looks really good as long as the sun is shining and there's no wind blowing. But when a storm comes, as storms always eventually do, boom, they hit that house hard and they reveal vulnerabilities that have been accumulating inside it. And my kind of hope is that one of the great lessons from this time will be a understanding that uh, it's enlightened self-interest to invest more consistently and deeply in, in the common good. Yep, I agree with that completely. So. Rick for Rick for public health czar, whatever we should call him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I want to maintain my amateur status. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, just just offering commentary. It's it's a much better position to be in. <laughs> so as you were saying a second ago, Doctor, um, alongside the obvious physical threats of the pandemic has been this associated mental health pandemic. And you were talking a second ago about cleaning up our own mental health and what can we do to support ourselves during what's been an immensely stressful time, and stress can hurt our immune system. You've also interacted directly with patients in your practice, like you were saying earlier, who've opened up to you about their struggles with fear and anxiety, uh, loneliness, depression, whatever else people are going through right now. And you write in the book about how many people are showing signs of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. What are some of the more subtle signs in your experience that someone is starting to carry a mental health load that could start to impact their physical health, both in terms of recognizing in our own system that something is starting to go sideways or how we can look out for other people? Well, first, if it's okay, I'd like to share a little bit about what I've noticed in, you know, for myself and with my, my two children. I have a 21-year-old and a 22-year-old. And for me, the last year and two or three months has been great because they've been at home. <laughs> and so I've loved being around them more, but they, that's not normal for them at this point in their lives. So it has been hard for them in different ways at different times, just to keep things interesting and <laughs> to keep me on my toes as a mom. But the way I've noticed it manifest in them is they're trying to take on a lot more responsibilities around the home to help me out that maybe normally a 21-year-old and a 22-year-old wouldn't be so concerned with doing. That's admirable, of course, but it's actually added to their level of stress because, nor as I said, normally a 21 or a 22-year-old wouldn't have to be concerned with groceries and taking care of animals at home or things like that are involved in running a household. Also, they've been very isolated from their peer group, which just developmentally and psychologically is 
also not normal for that age group, right? They are not supposed to be with mom when they're 21 and 22. They're supposed to be with their peers. And so what I've noticed is with both my children actually is now that they're, they're fully vaccinated um, and they're starting to kind of re-enter their social world that there's a little bit of social re-entry anxiety that is coming out on their part, either with in, in one of their cases kind of saying like, wow, you know, do, do I have anything in common with these people anymore? Um, just asking that question, not necessarily passing a judgment, but just asking that question, feeling uncertain about being in those social environments again. And I think it's important as parents, but even as someone who may be experiencing those feelings to recognize that that is a direct consequence of this pandemic and what we have lived through. And so be patient with yourself, be understanding, be nurturing, you know, talk to yourself as you would talk to someone else who's expressing those feelings because that's where it's coming from, right? So that's something that I've noticed as a parent. As a person, I can tell you that I used to have a pretty long fuse in terms of, you know, getting to the point of tears. Um, mm, not uh-huh. so anymore. Like, uh, let yeah. me tell you, that is right below the surface. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. At any given moment, I could cry for any reason. Um, and I think that also is a reflection of the stress and uncertainty and loss and fear that we've experienced in the last year, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then I think that for me, when I have felt no one likes to be in uncertain kind of territory, that that's unsettling, whether you're five or 50 (laughs) or anything in between or above. And that's what we are in right now. So when Mm -hmm. I start to feel unsettled about anything, I... I practice this rain technique, which my therapist explained to me, which I talk about in the book. Do you guys know it? Uh, it comes from Power yes! Brock, who's a good friend of my dad's and we've had on the podcast in the past. That's such a, oh such a cool mention. Yeah. God. Rick, will you please tell her that I quote her in the book? Oh, that's great. Yes. Uh, she that's would be great. so tickled by that. that. This is so cool. That's so funny. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God. And <laughs> I've talked about it on the Oz show. I've talked about it on my show, GMA3. I mean, so it cool. has changed things for me. And I quote her in the book, that's in great. the rain method, which for people who are not familiar with the great Tara Brock. Actually, if I could... Yeah. If I could just interject in full credit, which Tara would support as well. Uh, she has really developed it. Technically, it was developed initially by Michelle McDonald, uh, who's a okay, meditation good. teacher, yes, so just yes, to kind of yes. honor the lineage of it. Of course. Okay, great. Of Keep course. going. Thank you for that, by the way. Yeah. So my therapist had told me, you have to read Tara Brock's books. You have to understand and practice the RAIN method. And basically what it stands for is recognize what you're feeling accept, I think is the A, right? Mm -hmm. Investigate. So just accept Mm -hmm. it. Like, okay, it is what it is. It's here. This is what I'm feeling. I is investigate. So I I like to also say explore, you know, ask yourself some questions. Sometimes if I'm feeling particularly aggressive, the I stands for interrogate, but I mean that for myself. (laughs) And I'll say, you know, Jen, what does that mean? What would it feel like? You know, just ask some questions, some open-ended questions about how you're feeling. And then N is nurture. And I have found that to be a real game changer in periods Mm. of stress or anxiety or upset. But I think that if there's a silver lining, one of them, and I talk about a lot of silver linings in my book, it's that I think that the, the toll that this pandemic has taken on us from a mental health standpoint, I hope will represent a turning point that we you know, start to have more respect for things from the neck up and more sensitive to it, pay attention to it more, that kind of thing. Yeah, you said- I can't believe you know her. Oh my God. Oh, sure, definitely. (laughs) Tara's fantastic. Oh, it's great. (laughs) Well, yeah, you said something in the very beginning uh, that touched me. You, You talked about grieving. And just now you talked about the, you know, how tears are just 
available. And when I reflect on part of what's new in the normal now, it includes some kind of knowledge that in America, for example, just about 600,000 people-ish have already died of COVID, probably more with related knock-on effects, as well as all kinds of other consequences. Right now, um, yesterday someone was emphasizing to me what's happening in India, just the tragedies around the world, deaths north Mm -hmm. of 3 million worldwide, and probably growing, including in countries that, because of economics, uh, don't have good access to vaccines, let's say, that the wealthier countries do. So part of what we're dealing with in the in the new normal is is a kind of haunting with grief, mm-hmm. the knowing of loss, the knowing of difficulty that's happened, whose effects are still continuing in the lives of their loved ones and are still happening in many, many ways, both at home and around the world. And I just kind of wonder what you have found. This is sort of a soulful kind of inquiry here. What helps people be honest about that aspect of their own experience to recognize it and and allow and accept it, let's say? And then also what helps people be supportive of others who are also feeling that kind of personal and even collective loss, collective grief? What have you seen about that aspect of things? Well, first, I think to start with, you mentioned other parts of the world, but whether it's another part of the world in terms of a country or another part of our country, or just another part of our community, I think that one of the other lessons that we've all learned or should be learned from this pandemic is that it's not just that we should be concerned with what's happening over there because it's the right thing to do. It has a direct effect on us, for one thing, which most people didn't realize until this pandemic. But I think the, the empathy and the compassion and the awareness and perspective to the human lived experience that that, that provides is really essential today. And I think that it's important to understand that whether you're talking about people who are homeless or don't have a job or are displaced or battling COVID, as in India, which is experiencing the worst numbers of cases and deaths to date. You know, there's a saying in medicine that I learned from my father, who's also a doctor, but every doctor knows the saying, which is there, but for the grace of God, go I. So when you take care of a patient and you say, wow, I can't believe how sick this person is, that could be you. Yeah. And I think that whether you're talking about someone who lost a job or someone who's you know, in a country where they don't have oxygen, like India for patients with COVID or whatever, I think we have to have that awareness because mm-hmm. otherwise it's just not a way to exist on the planet with other people. Yeah. There's a saying, uh, sorrow tenderizes the heart mm. and it opens the heart. And I think one of my hopes in terms of what you're getting at as well, like what are we gaining amidst the losses of this time. And and my hope is that there will be a a more, a greater extent to which more and more people have have an open and tender heart, including for people who are not like them. Yeah, exactly. Sort of related to that, Doctor, if we look nine months from now, 12 months from now, whatever, we think three years from now, maybe when we're truly clear of this, possibly, who knows? What's your hope for what that world looks like? What what are some of your hopes for what we get out of this, if there is anything to get out of it on, on the positive side of the ledger? Of course, in the context where there has been so much suffering associated with everything that's happened. Well, to start with, I and I talk about this in the book, better learn some lessons about the things that we didn't do well from a public health and scientific standpoint. In medicine, we do that in the hospital on a monthly or weekly basis. It's called mortality and morbidity or morbidity and mortality rounds, M&M. And we do that every week in departments. You know, we go over complications and deaths and learn from our mistakes. And there have been a lot of mistakes, not just on the part of the United States, but the world in terms of their lack, our lack of preparedness for this. When, by the way, for 10 or 20 years, infectious disease experts and epidemiologists were warning that there would be a global pandemic and no one listened. 
right? So I think that there are a lot of lessons to be learned. And, and I'm not saying that in a way of pointing fingers because one of the other Ashtonisms, and I didn't create this, I wish I did, is that saying, be careful when you point a finger of blame at someone because there are three pointing back at you. So I'm not saying it in that ilk. I'm just saying that in, in terms of a systems and operations standpoint, I think it's prudent and appropriate to look back on in real time quickly and say, okay, what did we do well? What did we not do well? And how can we fix that so we do better next time? We'll make other mistakes next time, but at least we don't want to make the same ones. And so I think that you know, from our IT capabilities to our supply chain redundancy, to how we live with animals and agriculture, to how we think about essential workers in our society and how we safeguard them and protect them and how we individualize different populations in medicine and public health for their benefit to protect them. Um, It's not one size fits all. I think there are so many things that we can do and learn from what we're living through now and not just in this country, but worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that was a great summary of, again, like a pretty fraught territory in a lot of ways, (laughs) including just that really, you know, stark look at all of the factors that contributed to where we sit today. And man, you know, this is probably not going to be the last pandemic the world experiences. How do we want to do it in the future? Doctor, thanks so much for doing this with us today. This was absolutely fantastic to have you on. You are so lovely and such a lovely guest and it's great to have somebody who is also just being honestly like such a uh skillful presenter of these ideas and just such a clear speaker thank you guys so much that means a lot to me very earnestly so okay so the book is the new normal you're on gma3 is there anything else that you want people to know about gma3 what you need to know airs Mm -hmm. nationally on abc at one o'clock eastern 12 central and pacific i'm on instagram i manage my own instagram because people are tend to be nice on instagram um (laughs) (laughs) which is um it's at drj ashton so i do uh try to answer as many questions or comments as possible but that's kind of just you know me it's what i care about. And so you'll see like my animals and my kids and (laughs) my food and whatever on there. And I hope people enjoy the book and we're we're all going to get through it. And I believe we're going to get through it with greater resiliency. So it's been a real Mm. treat talking to you guys. Mm, Thank you very much. Thank you, doctor. Yeah, this has been lovely. So today we had truly the absolute pleasure of having Dr. Jennifer Ashton on the show to discuss the coronavirus pandemic and the contents of her new book, The New Normal. It's not every day that we get to have somebody on the show who can casually drop in that they were just talking to the Surgeon General and Dr. Anthony Fauci, so that was a real treat for us. That was pretty darn cool. We started the conversation by just talking about this idea of the new normal versus the old normal, and the overall framing of her book, which is that, hey, we can't look back. We have to look forward, and one of the ways that we're going to get through this is by accepting that, yeah, this is the new normal for a while here. And sure, there might be some point in the future where things normalize in a way that maybe we find more recognizable to the world that we lived in before, but we're in now. We're not going back. And although we might want to reflect on the good old days, that's not necessarily supportive of our physical and mental health. We then talked for a while about vaccines, vaccination in general, and particularly related to that, the ways that we can assess risk effectively. One of the things that Dr. Ashton highlighted during our conversation was how, look, if the J&J vaccine gets paused, that's because the medical system is working properly. The problems associated with that vaccine were a very small number of instances out of a very large number of doses. And the reality is that you're at far greater risk of a negative side effect from getting COVID than you are from getting a vaccine. And one of our jobs during this pandemic is to learn how to assess risk more accurately, which is admittedly often really hard to do. The brain isn't really good at understanding numbers of the scale that we're talking about. Yes, one in a million sounds like it doesn't happen that often, but really intuiting the difference between 60,000 people and 600,000 people, an order of magnitude like that, 
is kind of hard for the brain to do some of the time. And so the onus really falls on each individual to do what they can to think as critically as possible, because the choices that we make for ourselves as individuals also affect so many people around us. Dr. Ashton then clarified a little bit what vaccinated people can feel comfortable doing. The current CDC guideline is that they should feel comfortable being around other vaccinated people in small indoors gatherings without wearing a mask. But your mileage on that may vary. If you're part of a high-risk population, hey, maybe you want to wear a mask. Certainly, if you're indoors around unvaccinated people and they're higher risk, still, both parties should probably wear a mask. But the vaccines really are extremely effective. We then transitioned into talking about some of the other ways that people can support their physical and mental health during this pandemic. And what Dr. Ashton really emphasized is how she eats, how she sleeps, and how she moves. Particularly at the beginning of things, it was really easy for people to kind of fall into some pretty not-so-great habits in each of those three territories. I certainly did. But when we take care of those different aspects of our physical health, the likelihood that we're going to have a really negative outcome from coronavirus goes down. And equally, those three things can be really supportive of our mental health as well. We then talked for a while about supporting our mental health, and particularly what Dr. Ashton has done during the pandemic, where in addition to writing a book and being on TV for however many hours a day, and maintaining her practice as a doctor all at the same time, I mean, wow, that's just a lot of stuff going on. So how did she make sure that she was being mentally healthy? And I really appreciated how she was willing to open up and be vulnerable about the ways in which the bucket of tears, as we sometimes talk about on the podcast, is just right below the surface for her these days, as it is for me, as it is for many people. And one of the symptoms of the ways in which this has been so stressful is that other aspects of our emotional world have become a little bit more disorganized during it. We were absolutely tickled when she brought up Tara Brock's uh, fleshing out of the RAIN practice as one of the things that has really supported her during this time. It was just really cool to have somebody like Dr. Ashton bring that up so casually and informally in the conversation with Tara being a total friend of the show. Then, as we wound to the end of our conversation, I asked Dr. Ashton really what she hoped that people would get out of this, and she gave a very honest and kind of stark answer of, hey, we got to take a real look at the systems that existed that got us here in the first place and how we want to reevaluate those systems. And also, more broadly, how we want to relate to taking care of ourselves and taking care of other people. Because there's nothing like a pandemic to really throw into stark relief the ways in which we are profoundly connected to one another. So, that's it for today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to the podcast through the platform of your choice, and hey, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. You can also find us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. So to close, again, thanks so much for listening to the podcast and for supporting the show in general. Until next time, thanks for listening.